0: Fantastic. Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. Steve Hambrick here, lead pastor at Vintage. And uh, yeah, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Randall and I, again, we... 20th anniversary, sabbatical. We got away and uh, went to Europe for a couple of weeks and had a great time. And it was just a great, refreshing time for us. I encourage all of you, if you get a chance to go specifically to, to Switzerland, please make that happen. It is life-changing. I'm going to kind of sell you on it this morning and some of the things that I'm sharing and speaking from, just the things that God did while I was gone. Uh, but I wanted to say, hey, we are in our second week uh, officially of our small group series, small group campaign called Seek First taken from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and the verse says, it's really familiar, it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. And the thing, the things, specifically talked about things of provision, right? It was primarily those who were living in some level of poverty who were following Jesus, and so for them provision and roof over their head and food to eat at night and clothes to wear was a real issue and a real struggle for them. And so they were literally in this place, and God's saying, hey, that has become your focus. It's causing worry, fear, and anxiety in your life. Don't let it, right? Seek first the kingdom and trust that God will provide. And so it's this beautiful reality for us as we dive into this kingdom language of of recognizing this peace that, that God wants to move in us He wants to provide, he wants to care for And he wants to meet in our needs So with that in mind And I encourage you just to begin reading through that And other places about the kingdom of God There's just so many scriptures uh, About the kingdom the, There's the kingdom of heaven Which is Matthew language Around the kingdom Or uh, kingdom of God Which is primary language of Mark and of Luke right? it's Again, we're using different language Depending on the culture Whether uh, the, uh, the writer's writing to it whether they're Jewish or Gentile, but my point is like this kingdom language is powerful. It's beautiful. It it, it really kind of uh, overshadows in a sense of like an umbrella all of the New Testament and really all the Old Testament. And so this morning, as we talk about this kingdom language, this is important. I'm going to build this morning, like I'm going to build a foundation. Okay. We'll build a foundation of understanding around the kingdom, what it is. I'm going to kind of take you back to what Kurt talked about last week, but I want to begin with a question, okay? I want to begin with a question, and the question is one that I want you to write down or take a picture of. I want you to, to think about it. I want you to process it this week. I want you to be honest about it because I believe this question is the foundation for us in this study around the kingdom of God. And the question is is this. Do you believe God is out to change the world? Like that's the question. When you think about God and you think about the world and you think about the the news articles that you've read and you think about even the topics that we discussed around United and our series we did before this and all the issues that are dividing us in America and dividing us in the church and dividing us across the world, the question I want you to answer is do you truly believe that God is out to change the world, like that he's invested, that he's engaged, that he's moving, that he has a plan, that he has a purpose, that he is leading that he is king over, he's Lord over, and has a plan and a purpose for all that's going on. Do you believe God is out to change the world? How you answer that will determine the confidence that you have in God's investment and movement in our world today. How you answer the question, do I believe that God is invested and engaged and out to change the world, it speaks honestly to, to your own heart and mind about your conviction of who God is and how invested he is in our world and the issues that we're facing. All of you, being great Christians, mentally will answer the question, of course I believe that God is moving in our world. Of course I believe that God has a plan. But do you live that out experientially every day in the way that you trust and believe in God's movement? Or do you hustle? Hustle, in the context of work, can be a good thing. A person works hard. But hustle can also be, I've got to make things happen because no one else can. And so when we talk about the nature of the kingdom, it bel- bel- it begins with this place of do you believe God is out to change the world, that he is invested, that he is Lord, that he is making things happen in his strength. One of the things that I took away while I was gone again is, is this, I had a perspective shift in my own heart and my own mind around the, the plan, the purpose and the movement of God, right? I'm sitting here and we go the second week that we're away and we go to Switzerland. Have you ever been to Switzerland? Have you ever been to like the, uh, like Interlaken area where this very mountainous, the Alps region? So that's where we went. We've been once before with our girls about eight years ago. We went back because it's like my favorite place in the world. Not Honestly, it was very cheap. Flights were cheap, and it was cheaper to stay there than anywhere else we could here. So let's just go over there. So we 20-year anniversary, sabbatical. We spent a week. And never forget the very first day we were there, I we came to our little chalet of Roussi. It's this little Airbnb. And I looked behind our house, and there's this grassy hill. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so I climb up the grassy hill. It took me a while because I'm really out of shape. wasn't even that far away from here to the end of that wall. I don't know. But I was like, fine up this wall, climb up this hill. And I get to the very, very top, and I catch my breath. And I turned back around and from from this wall to this wall, 180 degree, I gasp at the beauty of God's creation. I look over here, and I literally off in the distance, I see a uh, snow-covered, cloud-covered Alp mountain over here that then spreads down here into the valley of Lauderbrunnen with this incredible glacier river that's flowing from all these glaciers over here in the ice down to all of a sudden looking across and seeing one, two, three, four, five waterfalls that are descending into the Lauderbrunnen's known is the Valley of Waterfalls, literally descending in the moment. And I see Murin, which is a small, car-free town up on a plateau up here, just sitting there basking in the sun. I'm like, oh my God, it's the coolest thing in the world. I hear bells. This is literally, this is exactly what happened. I'm trying to dramatize it. This is what happened, right? I see cows down in the valley and all their bells clanging that you see, like literally happening on television. Ba-bong, ba-bong. Like, oh my God, I can hear them way down the valley, like a mile away right? This is because the coming of the man is powerful, right? I see the, the, I see the church in Lauterbrunnen and the entire town of Lauterbrunnen, which is just like this Mecca of beauty, right? And I look across the way and I see again, this another little town. I have no idea what its name was again, over here on this side and over here to the far side was Interlochen, right? The lakes over here, like Ost Ost Interlochen. And I'm sitting there going, Uh, like I felt small, I felt overwhelmed, my heart fluttered with the beauty of God's creation, right? I'm like, everybody in the world needs, I literally, I literally said to God, God, please help every single person at Vintage get to Switzerland. I prayed that prayer for you. You're welcome, right? Because I'm like, this is the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. And here's what happened in the moment for me. Perspective shift. I, I said to myself, He wouldn't design this beauty. He wouldn't fashion this beauty. He wouldn't then give his life, literally his son's life, for all of this just to leave it as a mess. It's illogical. Of course, if God designed this and then the beauty of creation and beauty of humanity, of course he's not going to leave it in shambles He has to have a plan for the creation that he loves. He has a plan and he has a purpose. That was my conviction. And I think the point that I want to make is that I'm convicted that God then wants to change the world. And I believe that happens as he establishes his kingdom on earth. That's the kingdom language. I believe he changes the world by establishing his kingdom here on earth. Last week, Kurt did a great job starting us off, right? He led us, what I believe, to the heart of Jesus' message to his followers here in Matthew chapter 6. You can put this on the screen. This is my summation. I've got two kind of takeaways. One, Jesus had come or he had come and was working to alleviate the paralyzing and unneeded distraction of worry, fear, and anxiety, so they could step into the fullness of what he has for them. That's the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom represents fullness. It represents the fullness of God's beauty, represents his power, represents his majesty and his glory in the moments we would come to work to alleviate the paralyzing and unneeded distractions of worry, fear, and anxiety, so they could step into the fullness of what God has for them, plain and simple. He wanted to shift their vision. Before I walked up the grassy knoll, I was like a level of like, ah, I stepped up there and like it all went, oh my gosh, dissipated because of the beauty of God's creation, which led me to the beauty of God, which led me to the power and majesty of his glory. So beauty does beauty always points us to the beauty maker. And if he can do that, it creates perspective. And all of a sudden I realized he's big and I'm not. Second thing I feel like, just kind of summation too for Kurt, he wanted them, and Matthew, again for us too, he wants them to be so focused on the kingdom that the tension of their life paled massively in comparison to their confidence in Jesus. I didn't say he took it away as if it didn't exist. Like those things that create tension, the things that create anxiety, the things that create worry, those things are still present and still current. They're still a part of your life, whether it's at work or your marriage or your children or issues that you're facing, right? Whatever it may be, those things are still present, but but they all of a sudden stop overwhelming because you recognize Jesus is big and he has a plan and he has a purpose in his kingdom. God wants to establish it in those areas that cause anxiety, worry, fear, and doubt. Makes sense? Like this, these foundational pieces of what God's doing In this moment, he wants them to be focused on the kingdom and the glory and majesty and power of God. So that the tensions that they're facing, they just pale in comparison. Here's the point. Before I climbed the mountain, it was like the the hill, the small little miniature hill that just about killed me, right? It was like this. I climbed to get up there and it went like this. The things I still had to pray through and process were present, but I recognized God's big enough to handle these. That's this point of what we're getting at for these upcoming weeks, right? And so in this, with that all said, I want to take, I want to take this morning, I want to step back, and I simply want to build. I want to build a foundation of understanding of the kingdom for the next couple of weeks. So that those last six weeks we can dive into its powerful impact in our lives and in the world in those last six. So let's begin this way. Let's define what is the kingdom of God that we are to be seeking. You can't seek something if you don't really know what it is, right? Let's begin to get just a literal, like, general, basic, I mean, probably almost too basic, but it just kind of gives you handhold understanding of what I mean by kingdom, because the reality is this. There are books that stack up like this that say different things about the kingdom, and, but there are some things that they call all kind of agree upon and put their handholds on. Those are the things that I want to give us this morning that are basic, foundational. So when I say to you, seek the kingdom, Laura, you go, like, I don't know fully what that means, but I know at least it means this, right, in its basic form. That's what I want to do this morning. I encourage you to spend more time diving into yourself. It's actually a lot of fun, a lot of fun kind of diving into kingdom language. It's really powerful this morning. I encourage you to dive into that. Here we go. Let's begin with this first basic understanding about a kingdom. A kingdom, very simply stated, a kingdom is a territory under the rule of a king so we talk about a kingdom we're just talking about a territory a kingdom is a territory under the rule of a king so in its most basic form there are two components there's a king and then there is a kingdom, which is the territory, that involves the people, it involves people under authority, it involves the land itself. So how many of you have ever seen, man, the masterpiece from Disney, The Lion King? Have you ever seen that movie, right? You've ever seen the story of Mufasa, he brings little Simba up onto the peak, right, this pinnacle up here, and James Earl Jones, as Mufasa says, look over the kingdom, son, everywhere that the light touches belongs to us, right? And of course, Simba being that kid goes, what about the shadowy place? That part doesn't belong to us. And the next scene, of course, is Simba going to the shadowy place, right? Brilliant. And so just like all of our kids, okay, so in that Mufasa has this moment, he says, everything the light touches Everything, the people, the trees, the animals, the rivers, and all the land and everything that you can see, it belongs to us. We have authority. We have rule as king over it. So this is the nature It's a kingdom as a territory under the rule of a king. All of us have either studied history enough or probably more honestly we've seen enough movies to have a general rudimentary understanding that a king has a kingdom and he has all rule and all authority in his kingdom. The king, again, complete reign, complete rule, all power in his hands. Remember, when he speaks... Everyone has to move and things happen. But also, in that, in the kingdom, he carries this is important not just he's a power hungry person who then carries hunger, he also carries the weight and responsibility of care and protection of his kingdom squarely on his shoulders. The good kings throughout history, whether it was in England or whether it was in the Old Testament, the good kings put the people first, and their primary responsibility held on to was the care and the nurture of those who were part of their kingdom to protect and to fight for them. And so you all have experienced a kingdom, whether it's in your historical study or just watching movies. And one of the things we take away from all of this is that kingdoms and kings... Can be bad. Why did we fight the revolutionary war against oppressive England, right? Because we just didn't believe in kings and kingdoms having all power and all authority. Why? Because they were corrupt. And so we fought. And then we raised up a new model of government. It's not a biblical model of government because it's nowhere in the Bible. We call it democracy. We believe in shared power, right? Shared authority. We believe in checks and balances, we take all of the, the power and authority from one person and we disperse it to the many. So we now have checks and balances, and then we now celebrate democracy. Why? Because we know that this, we, we know that this idea of all authority being given to one person like absolute authority, it produces absolute corruption. And so we push back from it. So we understand kingdoms. We're Americans, so we don't like them. We believe in democracy, right? It's a great form of government, probably works best in the hands of corrupt human beings. But what about a king who is literally defined by perfect love? Like, that's what we're getting at here. God. Remember, remember in kindergarten when your Sunday school teacher said, let me tell you guys about God. God is love. And you went, oh, and you felt it. I think sometimes as kindergartners, we just get the understanding of love and the love of God a lot more clearly than we do with the toll sometimes, right? It's just more simple for kindergartners, right? Of what it means to love and to be loved and to experience love. And God is love. Some theologians say that the fruit of the Spirit is actually just love expressed with joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? That God is love and it's expressed with all these other different traits. Or maybe it is all of them. It doesn't really matter. The reality is God is defined as a king and as a Lord and as sovereign, as all-powerful, as literally being nothing but the expression of love and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So in this moment, right, when Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time. Time has come, everyone. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What he's speaking into the moment is this understanding of a perfect, loving king who is defined as love and joy and peace on down the line, who has absolute power without corruption in his love and expression of how he cares for, defends, and fights for those whom he loves. King has authority over a kingdom, which is territory and people and everything the light touches. But for a God, it involves the shadow places too. He ultimately is king and lord over all of these things. And so in this, he's also now this perfect, loving king with all absolute authority who governs, quote-unquote, his subjects, whom he says in Scripture, listen, I don't, I don't call you servants any longer. I actually call you heirs of mine and co-heirs with Christ and I actually call you friends. And so we begin to talk about the nature of this kingdom and the kingdom of God and having authority and having a plan. It's in the context not of you being his servant and being his subjects, it's of being heirs and co heirs and friends of the living God. So he has a plan and a purpose for those whom he calls friends. Because of the beauty that he's created to be a loving king and a lord over all of these things. And he's not corrupt, but he's moving in all of these places. So you don't have to have worry, fear, and anxiety is a defining characteristic. Because he's perfect in his lordship and kingship over us. These are the basics, right? The basics of the, the kingdom. The kingdom of God is all of these things. All of these things. He's King, perfect ruler, and earth and everything on it belong to him. And so with that in mind, I'm going to look this morning at the basic understanding of the kingdom in three different expressions of how we see it expressed in Scripture. The three things, you can put them on the screen, is kingdom lost, kingdom coming, and kingdom come. Kingdom lost, kingdom coming, and kingdom come. Let's talk about, first, the kingdom lost. Probably one of the most earth-shaking moments for me theologically, like my understanding of who God is and, and humanity and creation, was I began to understand that the clearest picture in all of Scripture of the kingdom of God and what it's supposed to be and what it looks like in its perfection is Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. I would be I would make an argument today. That the most important chapters in all of the Bible are Genesis one and Genesis chapter two as it relates to our understanding of who humanity was designed to be by God, what our relationship with Him is supposed to look like in its perfection. In the freedom that human beings are supposed to be able to live with in the context of their life, I'll just say Genesis 2:28. They were naked and unashamed. I'm just saying. Like I don't know what sheep but I ain't walking around naked. That's weird. That's uncomfortable. Right. But it speaks to this, the freedom that they had in the lordship and their identity and their understanding of their own personal image to have no thought of self, just the thought of living in the beauty and the majesty of a king who was perfect in his love and calling them friends. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It's the Garden of Eden. It's paradise. I don't know about you, but whenever we talk about it or we read about it, something in my heart aches and something in my heart longs for it. I was literally just this the past like four or five weeks, I've been sitting down with Sarah, my daughter, and multiple times, she doesn't even recognize she does it. She says, oh, my gosh, that is I just can't wait for heaven. How many of you have said the same thing? Maybe this week, right? It's like we've all said that, right? There's this longing. Why? There's this longing for it. Why? Because we were designed for it. We were designed for perfection. We were, listen, we were not designed to suffer, we were not designed to die. You were not designed to live in conflict. You were not designed to hurt. It's why you revolt so hard against it when it happens or you worry that it may happen because your body and your mind and your soul were not designed to suffer, to hurt, ever. You were designed for perfection. Genesis 1 and 2, that's what you were designed for. It's really important to recognize Genesis 1 and 2 is what we were designed for. All of the Bible, all of the Bible reveals a time of imperfection. And then Revelation speaks again of when we'll return to the garden. We will return back to paradise. We will return back to the Garden of Eden in whatever form God puts us in and puts it in in us, right? It's this beautiful piece. What I mean is like God creates this garden again. And I would say this, give yourself to think about it sometimes. I love sitting down and thinking about what heaven will be like. I sat in Switzerland and said, all right, I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but it's better than this. I sat down, I'm going to throw out something to you. It's not heretical. It's just a thought that I'm having in the absence of God being clear on things about heaven. So I just wonder about things all the time right? Like, what, what heaven's going to be like? And here's one of my wonderings. How many beach people do we have in this room? Like, you'd say, I could live in the beach if I could, right? How many mountain people here do we have, right? How many city people do we have? Just gonna love the city like one weirdo, right? Now, in this, like, I just sat there and wondered one time. I was sitting there like, all right, Jesus, here's a thought. Like, so you designed me with a desire for the mountains. And I wonder if in your majesty, I wonder if in your power, because you've given us that longing to be satisfied at that place, whether it's the beach or the mountain, that you have the ability to literally heaven be experiential for each person to look like and to be about the thing that we're most passionate and restful in. And so if you're a beach person, heaven's just a big beach. If you're a mountain person, it's a mountain. But Annabelle and I are together. She's a beach person. I'm a mountain person and we're experiencing life together and she's on the beach and I'm in the mountain. I have no idea that God has that ability. Why would he give me those longings not to somehow expand upon them again when we get to the garden and experience him in his fullness? I have no idea. He's not going to destroy all of creation. Why would he create something so perfect just to remove us from it? He will restore it to its perfection and return us back to the garden. We should celebrate that. We should anticipate it because you were designed for it. And it was lost. When? In Genesis chapter 3 when humanity sinned. And all of a sudden, I don't fully understand what all this looked like, but the enemy was given the right to reign and to rule of Narnia calls it the White Witch who created the perpetual winter. Kingdom was lost. Kingdom was lost. It's fascinating to recognize that every generation, every generation that followed in the Old Testament, every generation lived in the expectation of God intervening, intervening in the brokenness of our world to restore what was lost. They all believed God had a plan to restore. Read through the prophets. We're going to read one here in a second, right? But here's the thing about it. When we talk about the kingdom come, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom. You can't fully understand the power of the kingdom unless you first know what was lost. And understanding what was lost, the power, And the majesty and the beauty and the glory of it, it makes the loss of the kingdom then gut-wrenching and the desire again for it a priority. Recognize what was lost like the Israelites did and all the prophets. They longed for it to the ache of their inner being because they knew what was lost in Genesis 1 and 2 and they wanted it again kingdom laws, which then leads to the kingdom coming. Again, these are basic rudimentary handholds for understanding this kingdom language, kingdom of God, what it is, what it means, why it's so important. So kingdom coming. It's important again to note that the kingdom coming um, is speaking about and was it believed again and again in the Old Testament? Here's one of the primary scriptures, or a primary scripture, not the only, but a primary scripture among many that speak to the coming kingdom, and it's something you're super familiar with, and we read it every single Christmas, and we celebrate its its fulfillment. Isaiah chapter 9, 7 and 8, for to us a child is born, right? He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one who's going to come and set us free and restore the kingdom. Woo! Right? A child is born to us, to us. A son is given the government. Oh my gosh, it's going to be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called to us who are in relationship with him and know him. He's going to be our wonderful counselor, giving wise counsel everywhere that we go. He's going to be our mighty God who fights for us, who defends us, right? Who defends our honor as a people. He's going to be the everlasting father like the prodigal who's going to draw us in in his perfect love and care for and guard and protect us. He's going to be the prince who brings about peace, right? Of the increase of of his government, he's going to continue to grow, right? In peace, there will be no end to it on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. You don't have to hustle to make it happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he will do this. Do you see the beauty and the majesty of their expectation of the coming of a king who would do this, the kingdom coming, the anticipation, the excitement, the joy, the overwhelming nature of this? The Jews, I love I this for them. They make things simple, which is who I am. The Jews broke history into two simple grand eras. Two simple grand eras the old age, which began at the, the fall of man, and the age to come when the kingdom came again in the Messiah, right? It's great. History just in two pieces, right? The old age has a starting point in Genesis 3, again characterized by sin, death, and evil. Every faithful Jew lived in anticipation of the end of this age. Every prophet literally spoke about this ending with the Messiah, right? They believed for a savior, who one who would come and fight for them, akin to Moses, all of you have have seen either like Charlton Heston or you've seen Delton. You've seen the, the Disney version. Maybe you've read the actual story yourself of Moses coming and setting people free to inaugurate the age to come. This new age would put an end to misery of the world behind us where death and evil be vanquished. In essence, they would win. They would win. And the kingdom would be reestablished and return to them some form of paradise lost. This coming age was their primary aspiration. Which leads us the last piece, the kingdom come. So it's important to recognize in like church circles, theological circles, like smarty people, right? That there, the meaning of the kingdom of God is is varied. But there is almost unanimous thought in, in these circles about this. That the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God has to do with God's reign as an R-E-I-G-N, right? His reign Breaking into history with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God coming happened because of the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And so when Jesus says, The kingdom has come near, repent and believe the good news, in Mark 1, he's saying, It's in me. Remember when in Luke chapter 4, he stands up and he reads the prophecy from Isaiah, says, Today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone went, oh, He's claiming to be the Messiah huge right Jesus is claiming the kingdom has come. God had come to change the world. He reclaim His place as King and the Lord over creation, which is lost in the garden. Again, I love the imagery of of, of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't watched in a while, please go and watch it again, or or go back and read the books. Right, it's this beautiful picture. Right, again, you have the the this age when the kingdom had not come. They're waiting for Aslan, the Christ figure, to return, and the White Witch has created perpetual winter right? Worry, anxiety, and fear defining them. And I love this moment, right? In the story, right? Aslan is on the move, and Father Christmas in the book says this, Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. God! The witch's power is weakening, and in the in the movie, there's this moment right when the when and like Edwin and and all the four characters I can't remember the Lucy and whatever blah blah. blah. So anyway, they're like doing their thing, right? The four characters, the four siblings, and they're like they break. Listen, they have fighting the wolves, they break the ice off, they come down the river, they jump out of the river, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, we're all safe. and and they have, look, where's my jacket? Where's my jacket? Why? Because it's cold. And then Beaver says, I don't think you'll need those anymore. You turn around and all you see is green and the trees are blossoming. The ice is melting because wherever Aslan went, winter, spring broke into winter. Wherever Aslan went, spring broke into winter. The kingdom of Aslan was being established again in the moment, right? Speaking into this place of Aslan being king and lord over this region And the witch's power was being weakened. I love this imagery. It helps me to understand what's happening here in this Jesus story of his kingdom coming with his death and his resurrection. This perfect imagery for me of creation, of of God breaking into creation. It speaks to what the Old Testament writers long for. They long for God's restoration and reinstatement of God's intention of creation. Kingdom come. Kingdom come. So when Jesus says to his listeners in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, seek first the things that are right in God's eyes. This is a big sentence. He's speaking to several different things here. You can put them on the screen for me right now. Number one, he's speaking about every single follower giving allegiance to the king. He's first, not me. He's Lord of my life, not me. He's king, not the enemies. We're giving allegiance to the king. He is speaking about believing in the restoration of what was lost at the fall. He's saying, do you believe God has a plan to restore things back to what he intended on earth? And third, he's, he's, a, he's speaking to a king, a culture shift in their lives of hope in the king. He's saying, your hope is not in your abilities, it's not in your hustles, not in your hard work. It's in the king of all kings. Seek first the kingdom. So with that this morning, I'm going to end here, and I'm going to name six things, and I'm going to end just quickly on the sixth point. Here's what I've said this morning, kind of the foundational pieces around understanding of the kingdom. Number one, again, these are on the screen. You can look at these. God has a plan, in my opinion, to change the world through his kingdom on earth. How does he change the world? Through his kingdom being established, breaking in, right, and bringing spring into winter. Number two, God is the perfect king, right, for the spirit. And everything and everyone on earth is his territory. We believe, right, when we speak to the kingdom coming, we're saying, hey, he's the perfect king, and he has a kingdom and it's everything on earth. Number three, which means he wants to, listen, which means in everything he wants to bring restoration. Number three. He has come to alleviate the source of worries, fears, and anxieties of humanity. That's what he speaks about in Matthew 6. When he comes in the moment to establish his kingdom, what it breaks is it alleviates the source of our worries, the source of our fears, and the source of our anxieties. Number four, the kingdom was lost, Genesis 3. History long for the coming kingdom, and in Jesus the kingdom has come. Now what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks is the tension of understanding the kingdom has come but not yet fully. Like, if there's any theological premise you got to land on, the kingdom has come, but not yet fully. How do we know this? Because people are dying, people are sick, right? That's when the king's like, when perfection comes, right? The imperfect disappears. So we'll talk about that tension for a couple of weeks. That's going to be a fun conversation. Number five, the kingdom is lost history long for the coming of the kingdom, and the Jesus and the kingdom has come again. Number five, we are to give allegiance to the king. I just said that. You're to give allegiance to follow him, make him priority. Which means, therefore, number six, we are to seek first the kingdom. In Matthew six, again, Jesus says to his listeners, seek first the kingdom. It's important to recognize seek is a deliberate word used by Jesus that implies intentionality and it implies effort on the part of his listeners. He's saying, I need you to give your priority of energy and time and thought to the understanding and the establishment of my kingdom, not to the source of the worry and the fear and the anxiety. These, the source is not going away, but you can, it can dissipate into power in your life, right? Seek this. Give yourself to. I'll end here this morning. As a people in humanity here, I believe we are distracted people. The people listening to Jesus, they were distracted by their worries and their fears and the anxiety of provision of their livelihood, of their success, right? They'd become overwhelmed by them and they had lost sight of the beauty and the majesty of God and the reality of a God who would fight for them, who would defend them, who would be king and Lord in their life and to provide for all of their needs, right? Therefore, the call to seek was spoken in the tension of their lives. Hear this. This was super important for me as I was studying this. The call to seek first was spoken into the tension of their lives. Therefore, the call to seek was a gift to us in Jesus' mind. It's not a work. It's a gift. If you'll just seek first, Dane. if you'll just seek is going to open you to the beauty and the majesty and the glory of a God who will fight for you and defend and to be there and to bring satisfaction and restoration in your life. Just give yourself to it. I climbed with effort to the top of this small little hill to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God's creation, and it moved me. How much more will it do so when I give myself to seeking the king of all kings, who is perfect in his love? When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, this is what he's speaking about. And he wants us to give ourselves to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the coming of your kingdom. We thank you that you sent Jesus because you had a plan and a purpose. Your death and resurrection and the sending of your spirit is the good news. It's the essence of what the kingdom message is all about. Thank you for the first two chapters of Genesis. You didn't start us. You didn't start the story for us in our brokenness. You started the story for us in your intended plan for humanity. And that's life-altering, Jesus. Thank you. pray this morning just for those, God, who who, like your listeners and like myself, God, are so easily distracted by the things of this world, let's pray this morning you would awaken us to the truth of your kingdom. We don't have to hustle to understand it. We simply ask, God, we put our eyes on you and we say, God, now awaken us to the fullness of what the kingdom is about. God, bring restoration. But Father, we ask this morning that you would. About our ministry team to come forward I just want to invite you to respond this morning one of the things scripture talks about is that wherever and this is kind of why we pray for people wherever wherever God moves in the lives of people that was an expression of God's kingdom breaking into that person's life of God bringing restoration. So the scripture says when I cast a demon out of a person the kingdom of God has come in that moment. whenever we pray for God's movement in, in a person's life and then God moves, to release of God's kingdom. God restoring what His intended plan was for that human being. So when we pray for people, we're believing for God's kingdom to come. We take communion because we want to remember the message of the kingdom, of the good news of Jesus. So as we take communion, we remember the work of God, but I believe there's a grace that occurs, like a a movement of God's spirit in that moment as we give ourselves to remember. It's like it awakens us again, the plan and the power and the majesty of God. Where I invite you just where you are to begin to ask the question, do I really have a plan? Do I really believe has a plan for the world? Just have an honest conversation with the Lord about that plan of the kingdom. Maybe spend time just thinking about heaven, And the restoration of it in your life, and what that means today on earth, and what it means then for eternity. So you respond as the Lord leads this morning. I'll come up in a few minutes and pray us out. But please respond in some way this morning.